Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey folks, today we're sharing the special episode of the Cafe Insider podcast in the Stay Tuned feed. To be the first to hear the weekly Cafe Insider podcast and these special episodes from time to time, become a Cafe Insider member. You'll also get my immediate reactions and text alerts when news like this breaks. Sign up at cafe.com insider. Hey listeners, so it's currently 1.30 p.m. in L.A. It's raining, and I'm here for my live show with Kamel Nanjiani tonight, and I woke up this morning uh, to some major news, as did all of you. Michael Cohen, former personal lawyer to Donald Trump, has pled guilty a second time. This time it's in Mueller's Russia investigation. So essentially Cohen admitted that he lied to Congress about aspects of negotiations over a Trump Tower project in Moscow. He initially said that the Trump Tower project was done and finished and dead by January of 2016, which was the election year. And as he made clear in his uh, plea statements today, those negotiations continued until at least June of 2016, deep into the primary season, and when it was clear that Donald Trump was a presumptive nominee for the Republican Party. So we have a lot to talk about. I'm joined by Ann Milgram, who's in New York, and is here to help us make sense of all of this. Ann, how are you? I'm good. How you doing? It's raining here, and it's dry there. It's cold here. I'm, I'm sitting in your chair. It feels very strange. <laughs> <laughs> it's like debating an empty chair across <laughs> Exactly. So there's a bunch of things that Bob Mueller's office has gotten Michael Cohen to plead guilty to uh, relating to when the project in Moscow ended, uh, whether or not he had conversations about having the president go and visit Moscow. It's all kind of interesting stuff. Right off the bat, Ann, major takeaway for you. God, there's there's so much for us to talk about here. Um, the first major takeaway is this was done by Mueller's team. The other case was done by the Southern District. There's it's very clear that, in my view, and and I'd love to get to get your input on this, but that Mueller's team held this. I mean, this isn't new news that, you know, the the letter went to Congress in August of 2017. The testimony was in September of 2017. So Mueller's team has had this for a considerable amount of time. But what they were obviously waiting for was the president's written answers on these questions to see what the president would say. If Michael Cohen had pled guilty to this two weeks ago before the president had put in his answers. The president could have obviously tailored his answers around this. And so to me, the timing speaks volumes. We don't know 
You know, the president has said, the president's lawyers have said, I think just recently, that his answers, the president's answers are consistent with what Cohen has said. Um, I'm suspicious yeah, let's, of let's, that. Let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, let's, talk, let's, let's, let's unpack that for a second, because it's very confusing, and there's new information that's come out every few minutes today, even as we're looking at the stories. So on the one hand, I totally agree that the Mueller team clearly was waiting to get the written answers from Trump, and it's been reported that one of the questions... Trump was asked was was about this Trump Tower project in Moscow and presumably about the timing of it and how late the negotiations went and how involved the president was. And then Michael Cohen pleads guilty today and says that he lied about these things to uh, to help the political standing of the president, uh, who was a candidate at the time, going into the election. And then Trump comes out and says this morning, Michael Cohen is a liar and Michael Cohen is weak, which seems to suggest that Donald Trump's view of these facts is different from the way that Michael Cohen stated them today in court and pled guilty. And then, as you point out, some hours after that, the lawyers for Donald Trump have now engaged in yet another seeming contradiction to say that the written answers are consistent with what Michael Cohen says. So is Michael Cohen lying? Is he not lying? Is the president is um, everyone lying? completely insane? <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know quite what to understand. Are and Trump's believe lawyers here. lying? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way. It, it's almost impossible to decode. The, the only people who know for sure, right, are Mueller's team who are sitting there. They've got um, all the information we now have publicly on Michael Cohen, but they've also got Trump's answers. And you, you know, the other so so I find I do find that to be fascinating. And it's not the first time we've seen the president both lie, you know, we've seen that the president calls someone a liar and at the same time says something that that doesn't hold or or his lawyer say something that would be incredibly inconsistent. Um, what's also interesting about this, just to go back a little bit to the substance, is the Russia connection here. And what do you make of Cohen saying, you know, I did this because I was trying to limit when I lied about this, I was trying to limit the Russia inquiry. Um, and, and what is you know, it's not clear from anything that Cohen said that he was talking to Trump or his team at the time that Cohen submitted these answers and testified, but he lied to Congress. I mean, he's a lot, he's a lawyer and he literally under oath lied to the United States Congress. And so, you know, his motivation is to, is essentially to obstruct and stop the Russia, the Russia inquiry. Yeah. So I have two, I have two things to say. One is we should look at the actual statement he made in court today. And I happen to have it in front of me. He said, I made these misstatements, you know, these lies to Congress. He said, I made these misstatements to be consistent with individual ones, that's the president, to be consistent with the president's political messaging and out of loyalty to the president, individual one. And if you look at the actual, uh, what's called a criminal information that was filed today, the prosecutors made clear that the motivation for Cohen was to try to make it seem that the negotiation about this Moscow project was concluded before because it seemed important politically for them, was concluded before the first caucuses in uh, the first caucus in Iowa, and understanding that it would look terrible uh, as it looks today for you know an active candidate for president of, of the United States, who then looked like he was going to become the actual nominee of a major party, is negotiating for personal gain a project uh, in another country, and not just with business people. I mean, Cohen makes clear. He was dealing with officials from the Kremlin. High-level uh, high people. High-level officials at the Kremlin for a deal in a country that's, that's run by somebody who was interfering with our election as they were engaging in these negotiations and who is a geopolitical foe and adversary of America. So if it was all in the up and up, 
as Donald Trump says now when he goes on television saying, look, I was doing a business deal and I didn't end up doing the deal and I make I maybe wouldn't have won. And if I hadn't won, then it would have been fine. It looks terrible, separate and apart from whether or not there was criminal conduct. So the question is, how do you base a future criminal case on Michael Cohen and and what the implications for his guilty plea today are for other people, including the president? And Donald Trump says, as I've said many times, there's some irony here. He hires people who lie. Uh, they're clearly liars. They get caught in lies. And then when they turn against the president, he can rightly say, well, those guys are liars. <laughs> he's, he's, sort of, he's sort of right about that. So yeah. why does the Mueller team, how can they possibly feel comfortable with someone like Cohen? And you know they care a lot about credibility and truthfulness because the other thing that happened in the past week is they tried to have a cooperation agreement with Paul Manafort. And Paul Manafort, they said, lied in these debriefing sessions. And so they ripped up the cooperation agreement and he's going to have the full weight of sentencing upon him in a short period of time. In the same week, they've decided to to enter into a plea agreement with somebody about whom there are equal questions about veracity and truthfulness. And so my, my sense is that if at the same time they're ripping up someone's cooperation agreement and they're embracing a different person, Michael Cohen, they have a lot of good reason to believe they can corroborate the things that Michael Cohen is saying. I agree completely. And And one of the things that's really interesting is that it's clear that they're not just relying, in my view, on Cohen's representation of, I had a lot of communications. They're also, they've corroborated that. And it could be through emails. It could be through other witnesses. Um, you know, they reference um, individual number two. Individual one is is Trump in the information. Individual two is a guy named Felix, Sa- Felix Sater, who's a Russian-born developer who was part of the Moscow Project, who's been publicly reported to be cooperating with Mueller. So there's no way... and. I think you and I would would probably agree strongly on this. There's no way they would hang that the Mueller team would just hang their hat on Michael Cohen. But my sense, and this is also true from things that we've seen in last week with Jerome Corsi releasing emails. My sense is that the Mueller team has a great deal of information on all these things, and that what a ton. I I agree, and that's what we're starting to see. And so they're willing to take the risk on someone like Cohen and cooperate him because they know that he's going to say. I talked to the president three times, and they're going to be able to corroborate that he had those conversations. And that, you know, that makes a huge difference when it comes to someone's credibility. And look, they'll, you know, he, he'll have to be forthright. And he, he was today. I, you know, I lied. Here's why I lied. But it, it's clear that they're willing to to sort of bank on that. Um, wh- what do you make of all the the Trump will visit Russia stuff? I mean, I found also really interesting this piece in the Cohen um, in the Cohen paperwork saying you know, this question about when should Trump go, that he had a conversation about Trump visiting Russia during the presidential campaign to try to get this Moscow deal done. And co- yeah, there's a particular discussion in the paperwork that in which Cohen essentially suggests, well, he can go before the convention and Trump can go after the convention, which is a suggestion that you would have a major party nominee. Exactly. Given the, you know, the, the political situation between that country and ours to go negotiate for personal gain a private real estate or hotel project is kind of insane. Yeah, as the, as separate the, apart from the legality. Yeah, as one of the two people who could be the leader of the of the United States of America. And you know, I just sort of I look at this and I think the president ran on draining the swamp and it it literally looks like he wanted to drain the swamp to like build an ocean of corruption, right? I mean, everything <laughs> right. about this is just I mean, and everyone sort of affiliated with it. It's it's just implausible to think it's almost difficult to think that this could 
could have happened. Um, you know, what do you make also, and, I, and maybe it's worth just explaining this a little bit, you know, one of Trump's defenses, I thought today was the, uh, you know, I, I'm not guilty because we didn't do the deal. You know, he, he kept saying, we didn't do yeah. the deal, we didn't do the deal. And then at one point he says, it wouldn't matter if I did. But, uh, you know, what do you, what do you make of that sort of line of defense? Yeah, it seems like Trump obviously doesn't have any legal training or training in truth-telling, but his lawyers should know better. He doesn't believe there's such a thing as attempt or conspiracy. And, you know, he, he seems to believe in a, in a different, you know, parallel situation that if he plotted a robbery, did everything in connection with doing the robbery, cased out the joint, hired the people, you know, came up to the front door of the bank, uh, went inside, started to tell the teller to hand over money. He's like, you know what? Um, I, I feel the heat now. And I think I see a cop coming and then he leaves. He would say, well, I didn't do the robbery. Right. And even if I did do the robbery, it's my money in the bank. I have money in the bank anyway. And just because I was taking other people's money, money's fungible. I mean, I don't know what kind of arguments he would make if he were being accused of bank robbery, but but it doesn't hold any water at all for, for legal, you know, maybe there are portions of his base who are prepared to believe anything he says and any explanation he gives, but we're not operating in a political system uh, in the court of public opinion exclusively. You have a prosecutor, you have a judge, you have a grand jury, and you have instrumentalities, which are called criminal informations, indictments, and complaints that can make someone's life very miserable. But that leads me to the next, I guess, point to discuss, you know, what does this mean for Trump? Now, on the one hand, uh, it seems like the first category of issue for Trump is whether or not he has now lied to the Mueller team. We haven't seen his written answers to Mueller's questions. We just have representations being made by the lawyers, which I don't fully trust. Mm Mm-hmm. So it may still be true that Trump answered these questions about the Moscow project in a way that is contradicted by Cohen's later, more recent plea today. If that is so, though, that's a problem because it indicates, among other things, that he was prepared to lie to the special counsel. The one thing that I think is is missing uh, and is in Trump's favor, I guess, is that even though Michael Cohen said he was making these statements and misleading the Congress for the benefit of the president, for his political standing, right? So that all this this project work was done before the first primary. Even though he says he was doing it for that reason, he does not say that he was told to lie or he was told to mislead Congress by the president. And the reason why I think that's significant is in the last guilty plea he took in the Southern District of New York, when he said he made the payment to Stormy Daniels, he said very specifically and very dramatically that he had made the payment at the instruction of the president of the United States. So as we say in in the law business about Congress sometimes, when Michael Cohen, uh, you know, wants to to dig the the knife into the back, he knows how to do it. And he didn't quite do it to the same degree here. What do you make of that? Yeah, I I mean, I I noticed that language too. And I I thought it was very interesting because he basically says, look, I was was watching the president's public statements and I was watching what was happening with the Russia inquiry. And so out of loyalty and knowing what the president was saying, and, and it's worth us stopping just for a second to say that the president was sort of saying, look, the deal didn't happen in Moscow. The, the president's public statements, I, I don't think he ever said, yes, I had meetings and conversations until June of 2016. I mean, he minimized it and did make it seem, I think, like it was done before um, before the primary season started on February 1st of 2016. And so what Cohen, I think, is saying is, look, I was reading that. I was reading, I was taking the, that as signals to me, whether it was intended from Trump or anybody else. And so I lied because of it. You know, it's that could be true. It's hard for me to believe that there wasn't some back channel or some conversation between Cohen and folks on Trump's team. But 
but he didn't say that, and I agree with you. He he certainly didn't have any hesitation to say what Trump had done when he took the plea in the Southern District. The the one thing I I would you know sort of throw out there is that you know Michael Cohen is a lawyer, and he lied to Congress, and there's just a certain amount of. I mean, it it shows both, I think, the fear of the Russia inquiry, which was obviously a lot more powerful than than I think we even realized. But it also shows a level of arrogance that, you know, it was doubling down on lies and thinking that, you know, you can walk into Congress and lie to their face and get away with it. And so, you know, it may be that the president is not in this piece, that he didn't direct or motivate Michael Cohen um, specifically to tell these lies. But there is there is a lot here that I think we want to know more about. Look, I think the significance of this charge of lying not to Mueller, not to law enforcement agents, not to FBI agents, but to Congress, specifically a committee that was you know, charged with looking into these matters, is significant, A, because it's outside of the law enforcement universe. So, and maybe, maybe I'm overstating the significance of this, but you know, one issue that's going to come up in the future is impeachment. And the more evidence that there is that not only did Michael Cohen lie directly to one of the chambers of Congress, but that in some ways Donald Trump either knew that he did, encouraged him to do so, um, and even you know, most minimally drew some benefit, political benefit, from those lies. Yep. You, know, you would think with rational, reasonable people who care about the institution, about the balance of power and the separation of power uh, and the abuse of power, that that's going to mean something. Uh, both in the lower house, both in the House and in the Senate, when they think about how serious Donald Trump's conduct has been, right? I, I, you know, and maybe I'm overstating it because you've got still a majority of, of people in the Senate who are Republican, and and a lot of people think that even if there's impeachment in the House, you'll never get a conviction in the Senate. But it just cannot be lost on people and their constituents that you now have conduct that involved perpetrating something of a fraud on the very body that is going to decide whether or not Donald Trump faces consequences yes, for it. Yes, and no one likes to have a fraud perpetrated on them. I think I think it's a it's a good point. I, I also think it does send a message. I mean, I think we'll see a lot more congressional investigations of the Trump administration starting in January when the House flips. And so, I, you know, you now see somebody being charged and will be sentenced under criminal law for lying to Congress. That It also sends a pretty powerful message about, as Congress does their investigations, don't lie to us. What, what do you think, the President of the United States, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a tough question, which is, you're the President of the United States oh, right no. now. <laughs> this is very unfair. Um, how do you feel about Matt Whitaker? So, you know, I literally, I tweeted a few minutes ago, how do you think the President feels about Matt Whitaker at this moment? <laughs> and um, that's based on, again, this is rapidly changing reporting, and so hopefully... It doesn't change by the time people are listening to this. But I saw a report, and it's what you would expect, that Matt Whitaker uh, was given advance notice of this Cohen guilty plea. And presumably, if that's true, Matt Whitaker could have said, you know, wait, or I want to alter the documents, and maybe he did that. Or I don't think this should go forward because it's far afield or some, or some other such thing. And so this idea that Matt Whitaker uh, could, could spare Donald Trump some political and legal damage by putting the kibosh on something like this, clearly, at least in this instance, he didn't. Because yeah. as institutions go, even if you have somebody, and I'm not saying that Matt Whitaker is corrupt, but even if you have someone who's, who wants to go out of his way to protect the president, it becomes very difficult in real life to do it once you know the train has left the station and they've had all this information for a while and they probably had a draft plea agreement 
for a while because they've spent hours and hours and hours with Michael Cohen. Um, at a very minimum, I think Donald Trump is probably very upset because he does think everything is transactional. And he does think that people do things out of loyalty to him. And he had lots of reasons to believe that Matt Whitaker was going to be in his corner because of the statements he made on, on TV, uh, based on the also the, the things that he wrote in op-eds, that he thought the Mueller investigation was far afield and it should be starved of resources. But he let this one go. And, and obviously, you know, Whitaker had the ability, presumably, to, to stymie what was going on with the Cohen plea, because as we understand it, he is the supervisor of this. By the way, I've, I've, I've seen some other reporting. I don't know if it's credible or not. Someone has suggested that Rosenstein remains in control of the Mueller investigation. And one reason I don't dismiss that completely out of hand, although I don't know, is that there has still been no response from the Justice Department on the issue of whether or not Matt Whitaker has consulted with ethics officials about whether he has to recuse himself and what advice, if any, ethics officials have given him. So That's I think right. it's, it's a little murky. Yeah. I, I think it's likely the case that Whitaker is in charge. He approved this, but I, I don't think it's a thousand percent clear. I agree completely. I think the president is probably furious about this. I also think we have to be careful of reading too much into Whitaker um, not stopping this because my instinct is the same as yours. There will have been a draft information, a draft plea. They would have walked all that into Whitaker if he's in charge. And, you know, it would be so far down the road. And there's clearly evidence, you know, not only there's there's the written statement, the letter he gave, as well as the testimony he gave, plus him now saying that was a lie. Um that, that's a crime. You know, there's there's really no, there's not wiggle room um, in the sense that there could be in some other instances. So I, I agree with you. I think we, we can't generalize and say Whitaker will do the right thing in all the instances, but it definitely is, um, it's definitely a sign that, you know, at least if he's in charge on this one, he did the right thing. Yeah, but look, there's some bells that are harder to unring than others. People forget that even if you have somebody at the top of an organization, whether it's a U.S. attorney, an acting attorney general, or anyone else, or or even the editor-in-chief of a newspaper, if the underlings have gone forward and have done a credible investigation and are pretty far along and everything they're saying is reasonable uh, and within their purview, you know, what are you going to do? You're going you're to shut it down on no basis whatsoever. The whole world is going to know about it the next day and there'll be hell to pay. And if you're a lawyer in good standing, you have to worry about that. And it, it doesn't always work out that way. What, what do you think about the pardon situation? Um, on Manafort. You know, I think I suggested, yeah, on, well, Manafort. I don't think Cohen. Um, <laughs> I don't think Cohen's going to be in line for a pardon. <laughs> well, and 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 yes, I I agree with that because Trump. What did Trump say very specifically today? He's weak. He's a liar. He's weak, unlike some other people we have seen. Yeah, exa- exactly. That was not lost on me, and I'm sure it wasn't lost on most people. Where you know, it it felt like a shout out to me to um to Manafort, basically saying you know stay strong. I still think it's a possibility he gets a par- that Manafort gets a pardon. It is to me in many ways. Um, we don't know exactly what the lies are that he told to Mueller's team, but I think we'll know more more shortly. But it's very clear that, you know, he went through that first trial in the Eastern District. He did not go through the second trial in D.C. He pled guilty. And to me, if, if he were playing for a pardon the whole time, I think he would he would have maybe pushed forward with that second trial, though it was much more damaging to the president. It It, it, it is possible he's playing for a pardon, but it's also possible that um, – you know, he, like these other guys, is just incredibly arrogant and thought he could get over on Mueller's team. And I think, you know, a bunch of folks have made this critical miscalculation of thinking that Mueller doesn't know as much as he does. And what we keep seeing is that, you know, Mueller's got a lot of evidence and a lot of information that he's able to pull out and show when people aren't being truthful. And so 
I think a, a pardon is possible. I, when Trump's walking out of office, let's say he's walking out in 2020, or let's say he's walking out in, in 2024, he could drop a pardon for anybody, right? And we've seen presidents do this from both parties last day in the office. And, you know, Bill Clinton famously pardoned Mark Rich. Um, you know, there are countless examples of, on both sides of the aisle of, of presidents doing sort of final day pardons. So that's possible. And I think Manafort falls in that potential category. But the politics of doing a pardon sooner than that, I think, I think are, are problematic for the president. What do you think? Well, I think, look, I, th- I, think that, I think there's categories of malfeasance that you can associate with a pardon. So, you know, president has wide authority to pardon. Bill Clinton did some terrible ones. Donald Trump has done at least one terrible one, if not more, and can do more than that even. But if you just think that someone got a bad, you know, someone got a bad rap, and you try to absolve them in some way by a pardon, that's one thing. It doesn't implicate you in criminal conduct. But the other two categories are, if you decide to pardon someone on the basis that that person will then not testify against you, then, you know, people make reasonable arguments that you're trying to obstruct something. And if the president, you can make an argument that the president pardons someone like Manafort as he's walking out the door, he hasn't gotten the benefit of stopping that person because, you know, years have gone by. But that leads me to the second category, which is, which is why I think this is still murky. If it's the case that you made a promise in advance that if you go south or you know not cooperate and then eventually later at some point maybe when it's not so obvious i will pardon you well then that's potentially you know an abuse of power as well yes. I, I just think it's that that category of thing is really hard to pull off when there are lawyers involved how you have those communications it is also belied as you said by the fact that Manafort you know did fight did go ahead looked like he was trying to cooperate briefly and the idea that the way he decided in in exchange for a potential pardon offer in recent times to lie and to be sort of humiliated in a court document and face tons more time in prison just doesn't seem plausible to me. You make a great point, too, that in all the other examples I can think of as I think now about presidential pardons, I can't think of any in which the president was an actual target of the investigation and the person being pardoned was a witness against the president or a potential witness against the president. And so I, I think you're right. But we shall see. But how, how, so we got we to we run. I got a show to do and you have things to do. But what I worry about is Donald Trump's anger. And I have said many times that he is constrained in some ways. He was constrained by Don McGahn, his White House counsel, which we talked about a lot on Stay Tuned this week. Who's no longer there. He's, he's no longer there. He was constrained in part by Rod Rosenstein, who was in charge of the Russia investigation because Jeff Sessions recused himself. Jeff Sessions is no longer there. Rod Rosenstein is likely no longer in charge. Um, And when he gets angry, and it looks like there's a possibility that other members of the Trump family, if not Trump himself, you know, may be implicated in the false statements that Michael Cohen made to Congress, right? Because members of his family, I think, were involved in the Trump Tower deal. When Trump gets angry, he's capable of doing anything. And I worry a lot about that. Well, I think think just to add to that, I think your your worries are well-placed. It, this week has been, and we'll talk about this more Monday, this week has been a terrible week for the president. And I think the heat is on and it is likely we're going to see a lot more. And so, uh, you know, I, I would agree with you that I think the president, this is as as much on the ropes, I think, as we've as we've seen, um, as we've seen it during the, the course of this investigation. And so I, I do wonder what comes next. And the last thing I want to give thanks for, I was just thinking about it today, and it's brought into sharper relief based on the events of the last week. And what we might expect in the next few days when the president gets more and more boxed in a corner is to now imagine all this was going on 
and acting AG Whitaker was in charge. And, you know, the, the, the folks are circling around Donald Trump as an, and his associates, not just his lawyer. And you did not have Democratic chairmen coming in in oversight roles in four weeks. Just imagine how different the outlook would be. It, it makes a big difference to know that, that there'll be that there'll be some oversight. I, I agree with you. And I think it, you know, has some curbing effect, not as much as you want, you, you might want, but professionals like Matt Whitaker and others know that they're going to be testifying about the activities they engage in, the decisions they make in these weeks. It's a very important time and it's all going to come out and the documents are going to end up being subpoenaed and people are going to be put under oath and the decisions that people make right now in the Justice Department, in the White House, uh, among Donald Trump's associates and family members are are really faithful for them. And everything will no, be scrutinized. There's no hiding. You're right. There, everything will be scrutinized and will come out eventually. I'm glad we had time to tape this special episode. And uh, I'll see you live and in person on Monday for our regular weekly Cafe Insider pod. Sounds great. See you then. This is the Cafe Insider podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The producers at Pineapple Street Media are Kat Aaron, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at Cafe is Tamara Sepper. And the Cafe team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community. 